from McKinsey's business building practice, Leap, I'm Andrew Roth and welcome to The Venture, a series featuring conversations with legendary venture builders in Asia about how to design, launch, and scale new businesses. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice on how leaders can build successful businesses from scratch. Welcome to another episode of The Venture. For our 18th episode, I'm excited to share a conversation with Andre Menez, co-founder and CEO of NextGen Foods, a Singapore-based food tech startup. Its first product, Tyndall, a plant-based chicken, is already making waves with chefs and diners in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Amsterdam. It recently debuted in the U.S. and helped NextGen secure $100 million in funding. You'll hear Andre tell us about how NextGen designed Tyndall around three core elements, its decision to target restaurants before supermarkets, and why sustainability should be baked into a product rather than the main selling point. There's a lot to cover. Welcome, Andre. Great to have you on the show. Hi, Andrew. Yeah, great to meet you too, and happy to be here with you. Yeah, we're fascinated on this topic around alternative protein and cultured meat and sustainability in general. We had Josh Tetrick from Eat Just on on the show a few weeks ago and learned a bit about the world of his viewpoint around cultured meat and, and alternative protein. And there's so much... I would say media attention and press around sustainability in general, and then around food tech. And Singapore seems to be investing a lot in the infrastructure around R&D when it comes to food tech or agri-tech or whatever terminology you use. And for our audience, for corporate venture builders, one of the things that we always kind of remind or talk about first is before you jump into the world of, of venture building, no matter what domain, is to be very clear about sort of the emotional or valuable problem to solve. And would love to hear your story because I've read a bit about your journey to Singapore, how things changed for you, and what inspired Tyndall for you. That's a topic that I'm obviously very passionate about, both the obviously the macro sector, which we're part of, but as well that venture building perspective of it. It's not about starting with a product or a technology that you already have and finding a way to bring it to the market or finding a way to advertise it or whatever, trying to find that, you know, to develop a business around the product. From our perspective, it's actually the exact opposite is starting from two basic uh, big elements, one macro, one micro. What is the macro trend that we are seeing right here in terms of, in our case, sustainability, resource scarcity, increase of protein consumption, increase of awareness around animal welfare, all of those elements, as well as when you look at micro, we looking at our company and developing a product that's really solving a consumer and a customer need. Uh, That's how it started. Was some of the early learnings that consumers highly value sort of the sustainable part of it, or people are just looking for a better tasting alternative, similar to like what Impossible Burger did when they started here? Uh, I guess the macro layer behind it all that's driving this sector globally, it's all related to sustainability in the end of the day. It's the climate change being the way you produce food, being the second largest emission group right after energy and way before transport. So that's how big it is. For those who haven't read the, the book from Bill Gates, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, I highly recommend it. But that macro trend is what's how, you know really driving the industry, driving governments, driving policies, driving attention, driving investments, and all of this is, you know, culminating into an increase in education. Increase in education drives consumer interest, consumer interest, awareness, and and then investment in technology coming from this as well. From our journey of learnings, we have given ourselves back then the freedom not to start with a product or technology 
as a secondary step, we started by understanding what consumers were looking for. And we started by actually looking not at plant-based foods. We started looking at meat. We started looking at what meat really represents, what food really represents, right? And we have found uh, very important steps on that journey. I guess and the first one is really realizing that food is just not, it's really not just something you put it on the shelf and you eat it at home and you're just looking at nutritional labels like and just looking at it and say, I want that because it's giving me X calories and X fats and whatever. It's much more than that. That's one aspect of it, the nutritional aspects. And, but it's not only that. You're looking at it. It's a social experience. If I ask you or any of, you know, anyone in the audience, whoever is listening, what's your best food experience you ever had? I can bet it will be in a restaurant prepared by a chef with a great music on the background, great friends and loved ones around and family. And it's highly likely probably going to be during a trip overseas or to another place in which you are involved in that cultural aspect. And it all makes it so special. Why is that so important for us? That's what food really represents. And on the other hand, when we looked at plant-based uh, foods in general, it was almost the exact opposite. A few companies coming up and saying, I'm using the pea or I'm using whatever. That's my product. Is a soy-based or is a pea-based? And this is it. This is whatever. And guess what? You know, it's more sustainable. Fantastic. Uh, that's all true. However, what consumers really look for is that great food experience. And our challenge back then was like, how do we solve for that problem? How do we design a product that not only delivers on everything, on the technical aspects, nutritional, technical, but delivers at that level of experience? How do we design then a go-to-market strategy that can bring products to consumer and our brand to consumers right at that moment? How do we then communicate and enhance that as an experience that, you know, we raise our product, we raise plant-based foods as a category to the level, to the highest level of food experience. And guess what? Meat is right at the center. Meat is never the side dish. It's not fries, right? Meat is the center dish. You actually choose the meat and then the sides generally. Because of all that understanding, this is when we say we have understood consumer and customer in depth. That's how deep we went to understand like historically, psychologically, how this whole journey has evolved. From there, we started to design our product using our knowledge and toolbox of technologies. This is amazing. Take us into some of the first few weeks. You're talking to your co-founder, you're talking to investors. Where did you get some of the initial proof points or some of the inspiration on understanding what food represents, what's their best food experience, and then how that translated into... I would say your go to market, your product and, and go to market strategy, because it seems like you're taking a slightly different lens on it. You're really trying to appeal to not just taste, but the social aspect and the experience part of eating. You're, you're right. And I guess it wouldn't be realistic or fair for me to say that we started doing that when we, we started Action Foods, which was in April 2020. I mean, we're not doing it for the first time. So we carried a lot of experiences from our previous journeys. Nothing like we've done at Nexion Foods, but a lot of fundamental understanding that are extremely valuable for us to build upon, right? To build on it. What's our business model? How is our go-to-market strategy? What are we trying to address? What is the macro trend? What is the micro business model that we're doing? What's the value chain like? You know, let's study the consumers and understand exactly what they want in their eating, the food experience, the social elements of it. And we went to study way beyond the food category, actually, because not a lot of people in the food category are really being able to crack that element. So we just said, we started from that basic assumption that 
good food, the kind of food that can change the world for us, the kind of bar that can really drive trends and adoption at a large scale, influence and you know aspirations, which is basically what meat represents if you look at it from a very cold and macro perspective. As country as are becoming as a country is becoming more affluent, as families are becoming more affluent, it's almost a direct relation, a linear progression on the consumption of meat, right? So if you decrypt that and say like, how can we bring plant-based to that same level? Then we looked at every single industry. So what are the industries that are able to create that engagement, that aspiration, that inspiration? Who are the key decision makers in that journey? What are the proteins? What is the approach? Are we going to go one specific category? Are we going to do a product that chefs can cook with? All of those elements were part of our design principle. Hmm. This is interesting. It seems like a big stakeholder is, you mentioned talking to the chefs. I would imagine it was, uh, it felt quite ambitious during 2020 to begin this and then to even meet with chefs or to really understand the nuances of what a chef wants and needs and then that impacting and influencing the design of the product. I'm just curious, Andre, like, are you out there and when you started this, like meeting face to face with chefs or, you know, jumping on Zoom calls with them during 2020? How did you execute that? If you recall, April and May in Singapore, we were actually in lockdown starting those discussions. Then as it started opening up and the prototype started to get off the bench, we started doing the engagements with chefs and getting all that feedback and information. It was very ambitious to say the least, if not a bit crazy. If you think about starting a global business in April 2020, in starting with food services. So then after you collected some of these insights that impacted sort of your design principles, tell me a little bit more now about the product itself. I've read and, and listened that Roughly, uh, Tyndall as a plant-based protein or, or chicken is uh, nine different types of ingredients, and you have some kind of special secret sauce of some sort around how to create the fat within the product itself so that for a chef in a restaurant, it gets that same kind of browning or, or sizzle on the pan. What is sort of the core product value right now? Is it creating that experience for chefs so they can experiment, plus obviously taste for a consumer? Or is this just your sort of pathway through the chefs and through restaurants to then eventually getting on, onto the shelf? Tindall, in the end of the day, it's basically chicken, right? So it will evolve into different channels and shops and supermarkets, convenience store and all that in the future. We started by decrypting what chicken really means to chefs and to consumers. And what are the key attributes that define, positive attributes that define chicken, right? And we decrypted it down to three elements. And they were, one, the texture, the fibers, the physical aspect of chicken. No one is really interested in ground chicken. That's kind of nuggets or whatever. This is, like, this is not really uh, you know, great for our ambition of being the center of the plate and being that aspirational. Number two, the understanding of the flavor component and the smell. And, you know, that thing that we crave when there's fried chicken, we crave that chicken smell. When there's a roasted chicken, we create that chicken smell. That comes from chicken fat. So we went down to understand exactly how chicken fat behaves in each one of different moments. How do you, when you season, when you grill it, when you fry it or whatever. And then we got to your, what you're calling our secret sauce, which is actually called lippy, which is the emotion that makes that happen across different moments. And then number three, that's a key component that both from chefs and consumers, chicken is expected to be versatile. And what does it mean if you look at beef, right, the steak? And if you come from Brazil, like myself, or if you're here in the U.S. or in Australia, you would know that a steak is supposed to be just a steak with a bit of salt, maybe a bit of pepper, and the, the right doneness. Don't touch it, right? That's it. 
it's almost a religion. But whereas chicken, you expect it to be spicy, crispy, fried, uh, you know, cereal coating, whatever, like curry, skewers, it doesn't matter, right? So chicken is innovative and chicken is versatile and chicken is global. I love the story around how you created these design principles based on not just what the consumer wants, but how to appeal to the chef and this aspiration of getting chefs excited about it. Take us now to a little bit about when you personally felt you were onto something and this term of product market fit always comes up. Is there a story or a moment where you were really inspired? Was it a specific chef or a moment with some friends? There were a few moments in which we said, we are understanding this and it's making sense as a hypothesis. But I would say that there was one specific moment in which we really confirmed that our hypothesis was making sense and that we were really on, into something and it's not a, it's just that collective trip <laughs> that we were doing as a group. The moment was when Chef Adam from Three Buns in Singapore, one of the toughest chefs in terms of you know an ingredients he chooses and all that. He has tried so many products that I actually brought to him before, B prototypes of uh, different technologies. Be when I was previously in the company I used to run before, bringing different brands and different, and he was always so negative about them all. And there was this moment in which we, we got the first prototype, workable prototype out of that concept that I just described, the chefs and the versatility of the chicken and all that, what would become Tingo. We put it on a Ziploc bag. It was basically almost like a dough in a Ziploc bag. I brought it to him and we we're kind of embarrassed. And then I said, look, you know, can you just give it a try? This is the concept. How do you like that idea? And then in 45 minutes, one hour, I was getting pictures on my phone of the product, like marinated. And then another X minutes later, I was getting pictures of a nice, incredible burger made by Chef Adam with his own coating and a recipe. And then, you know, he was just raving about it. And that was the moment in which we were actually all together, the team, we were four or five of us all together. We were all together and doing a meeting. And then we started getting those pictures. I remember exactly that moment. And we said, oh my God, look at what Chef Adam says. You know, we love his work. We love what he does. And when we got that was the moment of uh, really, it's not only us, we are into something. Yeah, Chef Adam sounds like a tough customer and, and hard to please. So, and you you sent this, initial version in a Ziploc bag. So you you were really uh, trying to be, I, I guess, as authentic or bare bones about it and not trying to kind of sway his, his opinion with a Ziploc bag. It was what we had. So, I mean, it was really, again, pandemics. Now it sounds very easy and very funny and all, but we were in the pandemics. We had to build our R&D center and guess what? We couldn't visit any site. We couldn't build anything. There was no labor. We built the R&D center out of a kitchen. We couldn't get big stuff, big equipment. We are benched up was basically all of the kitchen and the CBD in Singapore. All of the equipments we were bringing in, there were smaller versions of whatever you could have in the factory, but, you know, installing in a kitchen. Yes, I mean, there was even power trips on the whole floor of the building sometimes because, you know, the, some equipments were a bit aggressive on consumption, but those things were what we could do. And the Ziploc bag was basically what we had back then. We couldn't wait for it to be ready to go back to him. We just wanted him to, to give a feedback on the, on the concept. And he did. I love that story. So you're, you're onto something. You feel like this is a signal or a leading indicator of, of product market fit. And let's shift a little bit to growth now. You know, I mean, you're, you're sitting in Chicago. North America is, is one of your fastest growing markets, if not the fastest. 
What are the expectations now with growth? I, mean, I would you just raised a hundred million and announced it in, in mid February. Are your metrics now around how many menus you're on, how many restaurants you're in? Are you still at the stage where you're the aspiration is around getting chefs excited? Or tell us a little bit about how the trajectory is changing now. Now that you have this latest round of funding, that's an excellent question. 2020 was the year that we designed all that. We came with the hypothesis, then the standard we designed the business model and the product brand and all that to address it. 2021 was the, the, the year that we tested all of those hypotheses, not only with Chef Adam, but with chefs from different continents and distributors in different continents. Will the price work? Will the cost work? Will the shipping supply chain production at scale, uh, will that all work? Will consumers get as excited in Dubai as they do in Singapore or in Amsterdam? 2022, to your point, what's happening right now, 2022 year is our year of scale up. And scale up in principle means not diverging from our strategy and from our fundamentals, not at all. Means doing those exactly same fundamentals and strategy and vision and ambitions and high bar done at scale. What does it mean to do at scale? Primarily launch and grow in the US, then launch and grow in the UK very soon, and then followed by Germany. Those are the top three markets globally for plant-based foods. And that's the, the year we are into. Everything we've done was basically ultimately about exciting consumers. The chef is a great, it's a conduit to consumers. And then getting chefs excited, it's a need for us to get and excite consumers. And I talk about that aspirational element, that meat has that we want to be on that level. We're building, we're helping build up a category. There's no one in the plant-based chicken space doing that right now. We have a job to do as a category right now, and we will, following which we will then certainly go into other channels. And, and just just curious from a, a go-to-market perspective, are you, as you inspire consumers and build this category, what's the balance in your branding or messaging between the sustainability message and the excitement or, or social message that you shared in the beginning? Are you going direct to consumer now around the brand or still primarily through your network and community of chefs as a conduit for that? I'm yet to see consumers at scale choosing food for any other reason that's not taste, texture, experience, nutritional. But fundamentally, yes, people are looking at nutrition, how it's produced, and this and sustainability. Those are all trends, but those are all secondary after you get the taste right. You can even get an excitement and get people to try based on curiosity, but that's not enough. You've got to have repetition and you've got to get that you know, loyalty. And that can only be achieved if taste and texture are done, right? I mean, are really performing. So those are number one and two aspects together about what we do, what we communicate, and we what we're bringing is delicious food. That's what we're doing, which then happens to be plant-based, happens to be much more sustainable, happens to have no animal involved, happens to have no cholesterol, happens to have the same amount of protein, you know? Then th those are all secondary, very important layers, but those are enablers or obligations uh, that we have. Those are not decision factors for majority of consumers out there. Our goal is to get people excited and understanding that plant-based foods does not mean taste and texture compromise. That's our uh, objective, and that's what we've been doing. Okay, so that's from a consumer perspective. You know, you're sticking to your brand principles around the the social aspect and the experience aspect of food. What about on the operational side? You're scaling now. Does this mean you're scaling up? production centers, R&D centers? Are you keeping things somewhat centralized or a lot of investment now in uh, warehousing and manufacturing? That's, again, 
great benefit of not doing things for the first time and having some experience. When we designed in 2020 the business, we designed it already preparing it for scale and for global scale. So one of the things we've done, we decided to be a very short value chain. We do not do manufacturing. We do not do warehouse ourselves. We do not do trucks and distribution and all those things because those are fundamentally different businesses and there are experts out there we can actually work with and engage and we know who they are we know how they work we know how to cost it how to price it how to engage them and you know what are their business fundamentals as we do have experience in that so that is what allows us to grow in a way it's uh, potentially decentralized in the long run we are already working on developing diversified manufacturing footprint in north america our current factory facility we do have ability to scale up quite significantly from there it's in europe we are also looking at a footprint in Singapore. So all of that is happening as we speak. And it's quite decentralized. Okay, so interesting. So you were very intentional from the beginning on what parts of the value chain you would own and not own and kind of stick to what you know. How many people are on the team now? How big is the group? 55. And how many, roughly, how, are, how many people are you going to grow to th this year if this is the scale up year? It's actually a very, I mean, just going back to the number of employees, very interesting stats. I was looking at it the other day just to, you know, see how the state we are, uh, the stage that we are. We are 55 people in 10 countries, 52% women, uh, age range from 23 to 59 years old. In our sea level, there is no one with the same nationality, which is pretty incredible. It's truly global. Even our board level is fairly, there are nine overall between board and advisors, all, you know, four or five between women, men. So very interesting mix of people from different places in different countries, different backgrounds, all enabled by the fact that we are, we started during the pandemics. That was all great for us, a blessing disguise. But in terms of growth of people, we are obviously learning as we grow, but we would expect to touch the, the hundred this year, depending on how the growth and the needs and the structures are designed, obviously with different go-to-market strategies, different ways of doing sales, different ways of doing distribution different speed of R&D center being ready here or there, there might be more or less, but we are expecting to touch the, the 100 number by the end of the year. And what kind of, uh, I would imagine, you know, everyone is sort of battling this war on talent right now. What kind of roles are, are priority for you right now? Are you a bit more R&D focused right now, more or more operation sales or, or a bit of everything? We, a bit of everything is, a, is the immediate answer, but I will decrypt that in a few, uh, a few more steps. But when we cut the value chain in only a few elements, we actually this the only choose we have chosen three things that we want to focus on. One is the product and R and D. So obviously, there's a lot of investment in people and you know all of it. It's the only place where we actually spend capex on. Number two, the brand and communications and you know the dedication and, and getting consumers comfortable with that. That's super important for the category, even let alone for us as a brand, as a company. And then number three, the operational backbone. And I mean, we're not owning factories and warehouses, but we have to manage all of these around the world. Like similarly, very classic example, Apple with Foxconn. Apple is still managing the flow of, uh, you know, iPhones and watches around the globe and the manufacturing and the principles and the, the, everything around it, all the IP, but they're still managing that flow. That's what we do as well. So lots of moving pieces. Tell me uh, with uh, a way to end this, what for you personally, what gives you energy, right? Because the startup journey, as you know, has amazing highs and amazing lows almost on a daily basis. What's giving you energy right now to make it happen? That's an excellent and very hard question. This is so, it's so big, actually. 
I think the first one, most important of all, is an awareness that it's going to be full of ups and downs. We want to not only the leadership team to be aware of that and comfortable, we want to get everyone down to the lowest level aware. So down to that level, number one, very transparent about it and, and very clear and very aware. Number two, I, I think I have a drive. I always had a very entrepreneurial drive. I love building things. I love seeing things today being better than yesterday and worse than tomorrow, right? I love that because that keeps me uh, going. And as long as traction is happening, I feel motivated by it. And I think number three, increasingly, as we are becoming bigger and more relevant and the team is growing, I think we are gaining a voice in the industry as well. So one thing we're, that keeps, you know, gives me increasingly motivation is about really understanding the impact I may cause and that, you know, the company may cause. It's much bigger than my journey. It's much bigger than myself. It's basically like, it's something that can literally help changing the world to a better place. It can be inspirational as well from an entrepreneurial perspective, right? What we're doing, the way we're doing, how we're building, how we are challenging paradigms and being, building a global business so quickly. All of those things, I'm starting to hear more and more that are being source of inspiration to other entrepreneurs. And to me, that's, I don't think I could, I could be happier. I mean, just when I hear those things, I said that that's, it's a big responsibility, I must admit. But at the same time, that gives me a, a lot of energy. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, you're not just building a startup. You, like you said a few times, you're building a category and it, it does represent a shift. It does represent, I would say, in the, in the long run a shift and a movement in the way people consume. Hey, this conversation is very inspiring. I think I need to uh, go check out Chef Adam and, and Three Buns. And, and I see the Tyndall uh, logo more and more all around Singapore. So it's an exciting journey that you're on. And good luck in, in what you're doing in Chicago. Thank you for joining. My pleasure. And it's always very satisfying to share and, and hopefully get a lot of entrepreneurs out there to get into their journey and build something meaningful as well. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks, Andre. Now comes a segment where we invite founders and experts from McKinsey to provide more context and to draw practical insights. I'm joined by Thomas Labuka from Leap by McKinsey. Thomas, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Thomas, welcome back to the show. Good to see you. Good to see you, Andrew. Always great to be back. I would say a, a hot topic on alternative protein. You know, we had Josh from Eat Just on the show and now Andre. One of the first sort of big points he made in the beginning was about his approach to customer research and design. And what I thought was interesting was how he designed for the chef first and basically asked the question, would, would this product matter to chefs and create a use case or a same kind of joy of cooking that chefs get with his ingredients and product versus others? And he was talking about optimizing taste and texture versus just pushing the sustainability message. And I wanted to get your inputs on that because I know you're tracking uh, research on this area. Yeah, thanks. It is quite an interesting one, right? He wants to make sure he passes the first decision maker. I mean, if the chef doesn't pick it up, you're not going to have it on the table. And it's not like you're going to be buying it off the chef first, right? So you want to get the restaurant experience Andre was talking about. Smart move there, no doubt. And smart move nonetheless to focus on taste and texture. Uh, we've done some research earlier in this year and from the users, i.e. the consumers, us who are eating and then tried out protein, any of the brands, we got 60% of the disappointed customers and 60% were saying, look, if the taste was wrong or if the texture was wrong, I'm out, right? 76% taste. 
uh, 43 texture. And the next one up, health, 6%, right? So the drop is massive. Focus on taste and texture really makes sense. And I think he already knows where he had it, right? But he's combining it with this, let's make sure it cooks. Let's make sure I've got the chicken fat-like uh, you know, property of cooking and getting close to, to this element. It's a good one. It's a good move. And his focus on that eating and cooking is a social experience. So that entry point through the restaurants to create the brand and get the product in front of people was definitely interesting. Now, he also was talking to me from a hotel room in Chicago. So this is a, an example of an innovation from Singapore that has now moved overseas into North America, which is refreshing because often the innovation flows the other way around. And when it comes to expansion, he made some moves on decentralizing the value chain and the supply chain. And we got a little bit into price, but tell us what you're tracking around alternative proteins and price, because there's still open question around price parity, right? Yeah, no, it's a good one, right? Look, the space is a massive opportunity. I mean, we're talking the global protein market is a two trillion opportunity. So you want to start off where you can really pull it off from scale perspective, from product market fit perspective, and you might have some advantages to pull off along the way. I think when you're looking in the US, there is a few things to take into consideration, right? It's a large cohesive market. If you design the infrastructure uh, close enough to the consumer, you will get the economies of scale, much unlike, you know, fragmented markets. Or if you look into Southeast Asia, it gets a lot more complex. These moves make sense. Nonetheless, if you look at the ground plant-based proteins, they are still 2x, 2.5x more expensive than the traditionally produced animal slaughtered ground beef, for instance. And that is the challenge, right? So I think where he's coming from is he's trying to double down on his strengths. He understands a few things and he also understands there are experts who will help him take out the price premium that ultimately will be the, the third uh, component of the holy grail. You got a taste, you got the text, right? And you got the price right. Well, now you really won. So that I think is really quite interesting and, and will be really interesting as it unfolds. And he's entering into the market with his 100 million behind his belt. Yeah, and interesting too, while there's price parity, I guess, in the grocery store, there's still a long way towards that. But starting in the restaurant allows him some buffer on pricing to charge a premium to get the product in front of people. But it sounds like the industry itself, there is a question around scale and like just the logistics of having the right bioreactors and the right equipment to actually pull it off. And he talked about sort of forward-looking that he's focused on R&D and product. He's focused on branding and building the best team and the, the operational backbone. Any thoughts there, especially on branding? There's a lot of education around this industry. It's a good one, right? Before I jump into the branding, I'll have one remark. I think what you see Andre doing is he's playing with the cards he's played before, right? When he compared it with the visionary and futuristic to an extent bioreactors and cultivated lab-grown meat, we are five, ten, maybe even more years ahead of us. If you look into the plant-based protein, the technology is here. And Andre and the team has done it before, so they execute, they know what to do, and branding is a part of that game. As you saw, you know, when he started thinking about how do we get into the market, you start understanding the aspiration. You look into the different, completely different categories like cars and you try to think, hey, how am I going to raise the aspiration of something which is tricky, right? So like, hey, here is maybe a substitute and it's an alternative and you want to get it on par. 
And that gets into the way. Uh, now, solving in the brand is means you matching the aspiration. I want to be proud. I want to be cool. I want to be, a, you know, this new up and coming, I made it guy because I'm buying, you know, whatever the brand is from alternative protein. That's the challenge. And that's where a right brand really comes in. Big topic is what's the right balance. We've heard of this on, on other shows with companies like Food Panda, but what's the balance between branding and acquisition when it comes to marketing? And I think sometimes there's been a overcorrection towards performance marketing and acquisition. And you, you've seen a little bit of a shift away from branding, but it's so important, especially in new categories like this. Hey, you're so right. And I think this is the difference between categories which are emerging and you have the tolerance, you have the risk appetite for the investors to give you the runway and say, you know what, go and prove that you can build versus the categories where you can execute and are cutthroat. Everybody knows the operations and, and the whole business inside out, and you just have to perform. I think in alt protein space, it's exciting because you often really do have the investors which give you the time to, to go and build the category, build the education, build the awareness and prove it. But I think you know what, if you do that, you're going to make something that sticks. You will build the brand, build the category, you're going to dominate it. Hey, Thomas, as always, very interesting insights and uh, appreciate bringing some of the numbers in from the research. Always pleasure. You have been listening to The Venture with me, Andrew Roth. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode next month.